AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Matt, did you read the story about the hosting provider that was uh, kicked off the internet this week? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Uh, so I actually read it on uh, Krebs on Security, which is a great place to get your news. Um, but there's this company called BitCanal, and they also do business under the name Ebony Horizon. Uh, it's a Portuguese web hosting company, and you know they were shunned by all their peering providers, basically kicking them off of the internet. And the reason this happened is because BitCanal has a history of hijacking IP space using BGP. So you know BGP, you can sort of announce the routes that you want to say, I've got a route to this IP address, and other people will pick it up, and so you become the destination for that IP space. And nothing in the standard actually prevents you from making that up. So BGP hijacking's been a problem for a while, and what BitCanal was accused of doing is hijacking space that either did not belong to anybody at that time or like it had fallen to disuse because some company existed and they went into business, but that was never released back into the pool. But they've also been accused of hijacking space belonging to DOD or the Texas State Attorney General's office or some block in Syria, um, and then taking that space that doesn't really belong to them and then reselling it to spammers. So spammers can use that as a way to, you know, if they have an IP address, they can start sending spam from that IP address. And the internet community as a whole, led by a couple very insistent people, um, managed to get them de-peered, which means that no one is, is offering them connections out to the internet anymore. There was apparently a bit of a dip in spam as a result of that, uh, but not for too long. A technical solution um, like an internet exchange provider kicking this firm off of the internet, um, although it's good uh, and it is a win, um, it doesn't necessarily do anything to prevent the same person, same owner or same company from simply changing names or changing countries or, or even both and then continuing to do what they're doing. So the lack of laws and criminality in this case um, really sort of lends uh, a hand to, to the original company to just get up and move and, and continue somewhere else. Nothing prevents them from doing it again. That's, that's my take on it. I'm curious to see what you guys think. Yeah, I would say that he even, the, the owner of, of BitCanal even uh, stated that he didn't think he was, uh, he was responsible. He, he blamed it on um, one or two customers of his that he seemingly had no control over, um, which is in direct opposition of how his company's operations were described by other people and companies um, as being flagrant. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I, I think that without putting him behind bars, without actually criminalizing what he's done, we're only going to see a temporary drop, a temporary dip in that, in that spamming traffic. What do you think, Mike? You know, I think that you know, what we would need to do is look to address some of the underlying problems in the supporting standards, you know, not only BGP, but also DNS, and put technical controls in place so that you could enforce some integrity. Uh, in the updates. That's true. I mean, these are all good things. If VGP hijacking wasn't possible, then we wouldn't be having this discussion in the first place. I agree with that. Um, right. I just don't know that at the scale that the internet operates today that it's going to be anytime soon that we see a major way in, in the, 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 the way that it works technically. Like, for any kind of new standard to take root, it takes a whole bunch of years. I mean, let's, let's face it, I thought we would be on IPv6 by now. Uh, we've had plenty of time to make that change, and it just it just hasn't happened on a large scale that we thought it would. And I, I tend to think that that's the same way it would be for any other sort of core functions of the internet. And I think BGP is one of those. So I agree completely, um, but I think there you know you're kind of stuck in some cases between like a, a rock and a hard place, right? I mean, if you're looking to make 
systemic change uh, to behavior, I think going either the technical route or the legal route um, when you're dealing you know, on, on a global scale is probably equally problematic. I think the real lesson here is for the carriers, the ISPs, and the exchanges, people who route traffic for other people, uh, should keep an eye out for this and realize that they have some small part to play in keeping the internet, the commons itself, safe and, and free of spam for other people. And if that means you know, denying somebody service or refusing to sell uh, service to somebody who has a track record for abuse, that's the right way to do it. So, Mike, it looks like you got a story about some malicious MDM servers serving up some malware. Yeah, this was a, a story that kind of caught my eye coming from the uh, Cisco Talos group. Uh, they identified a very targeted um, mobile malware campaign in India uh, that was affecting a, a grand total of 13 devices, which you, know, you kind of wonder whose 13 devices those might have been. But some of the actual kind of techniques that were used in the campaign I thought were interesting. Um, the attackers set up a open source mobile device management software uh, platform uh, for iOS devices called MDM Server. This project's available uh, via GitHub. You can go check it out if you'd like. Um, and what they did was then convince, through some mechanism, these targeted individuals to enroll um, their mobile devices into this MDM server. Um, they're not entirely certain how this was achieved. It may have been through direct physical access to the devices themselves. Um, however, they also they seem to think it was most likely uh, the result of social engineering and fraudulent uh, tech support type conversations, uh, convincing uh, the user to basically enroll themselves to allow their device to be managed remotely. Once that occurred, the attackers used the B Options project, again, uh, open source project on GitHub, to shim legitimate um, apps with uh, additional DLLs that would then allow them to update uh, those legitimate applications on the mobile device. And because of the injected code, they would be able to in, uh, intercept phone numbers, serial numbers, the devices, locations, contacts, pull photos, as well as SMS, Telegram, and WhatsApp chat messages, among other things. Once you've got MDM on, MDM acts like a root user, and it can control what apps go on and off, and it can even install apps that wouldn't normally be accepted by, say, Apple's own store. So if you, wanted to, if you were a company using this legitimately, you could use this to push a company-specific application that you didn't want to put out in the store. And that's a great idea, except when someone malicious controls your MDM, they can put whatever they want with all their malware on there. So with MDM solutions, there's a lot of uh, interaction involved. So with an MDM solution, a user would typically have to accept the MDM solution onto their device. And then any changes that the solution would make, uh, such as updating applications or actually pushing entirely new applications to the device, actually requires user intervention. You'd have to hit OK on that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious as you are to see how they managed to pull that off. Yeah, and that's what gives the um, kind of theory that it was done via, like, malicious um, tech support calls mm -hmm. um, where users were instructed, hey, you know, take steps A, B, and C to allow us to, you know, solve your issue or what have you um, was really sort of the um, infection vector uh, initially. Yeah, and that means the, the level of, of work involved for each individual victim does suggest that they're high-profile victims, that somebody, it's not this, like, it's not spray and pray. It's not anything like that. This is, this is interesting stuff. 
I found it interesting that the uh, the article actually didn't even go into detail as to who these people were, who they who they worked for, if it was all the same company, if they were all in the same small geographic area. Mm -hmm. um, all of the information is either I, I, I doubt it's unknown, but it's omitted from the article. Um, so I would imagine that there's going to be more coming from this in the future. What was also interesting is when they when they got a hold of the MDM servers themselves and started looking through the, the data and the logs there, there was a lot of development uh, content apparently left on the devices. So they were able to see um, that there were misdirection, uh, kind of false flags planted, uh, where some of the certificates were registered uh, using mail.ru uh, type devices to try and give people an indication that it was uh, uh, really uh, being sourced from Russia. Yet the mobile devices that were used for testing of the solution prior to deployment were actually Vodafone devices registered in India with local phone numbers. Um, so there, it was interesting, even at that level, uh, there were some attempts at false flag planting with, to complicate attribution and things like that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Attribution is a difficult thing, uh, but it's always notable when you, n you can catch on to somebody else's false flag operation and say, it's clear that this is an inconsistency. You know, it may not be conclusive that the, the facts point back to the real perpetrator, but somebody's trying to go to lengths to hide who they are. It's a very good idea to avoid uh, installing things on your phone, whether it be your personal device or your company device, uh, if it's not explicitly stated by your enterprise that it needs to be in installed for whatever reason. If somebody calls you and tells you that they need to install something on your device, and it sounds a little weird or it's out of the blue or you have no knowledge of it whatsoever, it's important to follow up uh, with on a different channel to make sure that that request is legitimate and coming from the source that you think it's coming from. So a five-year-old vulnerability has actually resurfaced in the form of IoT search engine results. Um, Dawa DVRs five years ago were discovered to have a vulnerability in that an attacker can send uh, a specialized packet of information to a specific port and then get back things like uh, configuration settings, passwords, and serial numbers. And all of that response is actually in plain text. So the new wrinkle is that a company, uh, a lot like Shodan, they're an IoT search engine um, called Zumai, uh, has actually not only been indexing these internet-facing IPs, but has also been sending in that information and getting that response back and then caching that response containing those plain text passwords mm -hmm. uh, for anybody with a Zumai account uh, to access, which is a free account. So the work has kind of been done for you uh, in that case. So, I mean, obviously it's become public that this is a, a problem, and, and what's been Zumai's response? So, unfortunately, Zumai has, has stated that uh, removing those results from their uh, database wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. So as of now, they have no plans to actually remove those results from uh, queries for that particular port. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if that changes in the future. But as of now, it looks like that information is going to stay online. I think that's a reasonable response. It's just not the optimal solution at the same time, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, and it feels like a l little bit like a line has been crossed by having the story come up to the surface uh -huh. and then stating publicly that you're not really going to do anything about it. That's different, yes. It's, it's different, and it's hard to hold a company like Zumai or Shodan accountable for all of the results that they get from scanning the internet, in, in, in a sense. But like I said, now that it's come up to the top, I feel like that line's been drawn. Now it's time to actually step up and, and do something. Yeah, I agree. What do you think, Mike? 
Well, it's my understanding that this is not a simple, I ping the port to fingerprint a device and I get back all this stuff in a banner header or something like that, as the example you mentioned. It seems like there's, you know, a bit of a, you know, crafted packet that you need to send to this port in order to obtain this information, which they are then indexing. I see. So my takeaway from this is that there's probably another way for them to fingerprint that device that doesn't return those results in the first place. Okay. And that's the part that I have a problem with. So it seems like they have purposefully reached out to cache those devices. Again, if I understand the, the, the method that they're going about, you know, requiring some initiative here, and it's not just a simple, I'm going to ping this port to see if it responds, and it's just going to automatically give me all this stuff. I think there's more to it than that. ZoomEye's job is really to scan and, and index these devices to say what ports are open. But they didn't necessarily have to use the specific message that brings back those username and passwords. They could have done it with another type of probe that would have given the same kind of valid response to say, yes, this port is open without exposing this information for all of these people who have these devices. So what's interesting to me is looking at the um, you know, Wikipedia pages and the, the page for the actual company is that this doesn't seem to be a home user thing. This doesn't seem to be you know, like a DVR like you would have from you know, your cable provider uh, that is being impacted by this. These guys are actually kind of in the high-end video security surveillance um, DVR uh, kind of realm which implies that these devices that are being um, fingerprinted and impacted have been deployed by some sort of a corporate entity, by a physical security um, organization inside of a enterprise entity of some kind. Mm -hmm. So one would think that um, there would be fewer of these devices that are available uh, to be fingerprinted in this way. If you have one of these devices, five years ago was the time to patch it, now is definitely the time to patch it because a larger group of people understand how to obtain the passwords for your specific device. I also think that there's a little bit of responsibility on ZoomEye's part that they ought to be removing this information. I realize that it's a lot to take on, especially if the expectation is then that they will do this for all of the data in their data sets. But I think in this particular situation, it makes sense to remove that information from the data set. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.